If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Okay, welcome everybody. Listen, I'm going to need you all to just get yourself a drink, have a seat, relax, get ready, because this is the fourth episode in our clobber passages series and it's going to get real here so you just better be ready for your it just it's going to be amazing you just got to get ready um and i'm warning you right now my name is keith giles uh i am one of many hosts of the heritage capier podcast i'm the author of the jesus un series of books including the most recently released jesus unexpected ending the end times to become the second coming and i am joined here by the amazing heritage capier co-hosts Katie, Derek, and Matt. Say hi, guys. Hi, everyone. This is Katie from my drink tonight. I'm drinking the blood of a thousand men. <laughs> Jesus. As we're talking about women and scripture. Going for the goal. It was one of those days where I think the um, the universe and spirit brought to me like every every little thing that could get under my skin around gender the past day or two. Got under my skin. So here I here we are. I'm happy to talk about this. I actually am a New Testament scholar and I wrote a book, Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, where I did inter- I did research the intersections of gender and sexuality in the ancient world, something I like to do. So happy to talk about all this today. And I am Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion and the host of the Forward Podcast. I'm not a theological scholar. I am a professional cur, curmudgeon, asshole for hire. And ha- do you have a website where we can hire you, Derek? Yep. Is that something we can yeah. do? www.derekday.com. All right. All right. Well, good. And, and that makes me Matt DeStefano. I am the author of many books, most recently, uh, The Bonfire Sessions Winter and forthcoming up on uh, April 20th. Uh, we're going to have the whole first year with a forward by my man, Derek Day. And, uh, yes, sir. Excited for uh, the first time we've ever done the fourth episode in this Clobber series. So uh, excited to get into it today with y'all. Brand new. Dig that, man. And in case you are wondering, how can I get in touch with these awesome heretics? We have a hotline and you can exercise Finger Dexterity by dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. And we're going to roll that beautiful text footage. And the text reads, Hi, HHH. That is Heretic Happy Hour. I'd love an episode where you guys go into detail on who you believe Jesus was and if he is needed for salvation and how those beliefs are consistent with the Bible. I've been a Christian most of my life and was recently introduced to your podcast. It's getting me thinking. So thank you for that. Yours truly, David. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, David. Um, I guess if you've only recently been introduced to the podcast, that's probably why you're not sure where we stand on that question, I think. But uh, that's okay. That's good. Um, I I don't know. I'm sure we all have, all four of us have slightly different understandings of how to answer that question. Um, I guess basically I would say, I believe that Jesus was right about who we are and who God is. And... um, as far as Jesus being necessary for salvation, um, no, probably not in the way you think of salvation. Yes. All right. Um, but I do think there's basically, 
that Jesus gave us a way to live in the Sermon on the Mount and in his teachings, that uh, if we follow that path, that is the way that leads to life. And if we, uh, if we follow that, then we'll end up with, a, I think, a life here and now that we'll get to experience the kingdom here and now in a way that does lead to life uh, for ourselves and others around us. So, um, and in that way, I guess maybe you can call that salvation, but probably, again, probably not the way you think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always inclined to, uh, to ask what people mean by certain terms. And, and with salvation, it gets a little sticky. Um, it gets, um, it's kind of like those, uh, those Christianese evangelical words that we use. So depending on what, on what we mean by salvation, I think Jesus is totally salvific. Um, does he spare us from the wrath of God? No, I don't believe so. Does he spare us from certain things in life though? Yeah, I think his path does. I would put a big caveat on that and say that he's not the only one. And, and I would say that if you follow the way, what, if you, well, you know, if this is, we're almost, we're pushing a hundred episodes on this podcast. If y'all, if y'all stayed, stayed up with us this far, yeah, that's not that bad. But, um, I mean, I think there are many ways, uh, no, I think there are, there are many, um, people that have, followed the way of Christ, the way of Jesus, I would say the way of Buddha. And if we follow those people, I think that is salvific as well. So is Jesus the way? Yes. Is he the only way? Uh, I would hesitate to say that though. Yeah, I'd agree. See, um, so the, my favorite part of this text, David, is uh, it's getting me thinking. So that's awesome. You know, I my ideas on Jesus are always evolving. They're always changing um, who Jesus was, who Jesus is. So keeps it um, interesting and on my toes. You know, I see Christ in everything and through everything. So is Jesus needed for salvation? Again, whatever, whatever salvation is, which I certainly don't know uh, here in my human limited experience. But is if Christ is in absolutely everything, then Christ is needed, but I don't really have to do much about that. Right? It's already there. Right. Yep. Um, and how how we go about following that in our own lives and and learning and growing is um, the fun part, uh, sometimes the worrisome part, right? So I I think similar to to what Keith, Keith and Matt were saying, but maybe um, maybe I'm expressing it in a different way, where Christ is in and through everything already. So I'm like, oh, job done, cool. I don't have to worry about the salvation part; it's already uh, already in place. You know how that accords yeah. with scripture. I I definitely think we could probably devote a um, you know a year of episodes to that. And so we'll save that for another time. That's a great idea for, um, you know, for a later theme. And I think that, well, I agree with something that everyone has said here, but I don't believe that Jesus was necessary for salvation because I don't think that man needed saving. I think that, that man, man was created good. And God said he was very good. And, and basically, there was nothing to be saved from. I mean, if you're very good, you're very good, and that's that. You know, if God said it, that, and you you believe the Bible, then that pretty much settles that. Um, and so, as far as like salvation, I believe, like Keith said, that God is in everything, um, and and that there is no need for a savior. That's my two cent. But I like the thinking part too. I want to. I want to definitely agree with that because if you're if you're thinking, then you're growing. And and I just got to throw this in here because I had a funny picture pictorial thought when Katie said it keeps her on her toes. I was thinking about her dancing around the ring like Muhammad Ali. Don't ask me why. 
That's just the thought that came to my mind. I am so going to channel that for the rest of the episode. So thank you for that gift, yeah. Eric. That's <laughs> hey, flow like a butterfly and sting like a fucking bee. Oh. I am the greatest. <laughs> the greatest of all time. So, uh, yeah, I mean, let's, uh, I, I don't know what we have going on um, after this clobber series, but uh, we might have to put that in the uh, the old bank there and do an episode on that. Yeah, I think um, it'd be interesting to kind of do, talk about what it, what is something like, what do we mean? Do we need to be saved or not? You know, so I'm kind of half the time, yeah. Derek, I'm with you. I'm like, people are good. We don't need to be saved. Then the other half, I look around like people are idiotic. We definitely need to be saved. <laughs> I, we, I go yeah. back and forth. <laughs> they might need, they might need that too so um yeah thank you for that text appreciate it david um awesome. let's see yeah. Do we, i think yeah. it's, it's time let's let's talk to our amazing fabulous wonderful heretic of the week it's the heretic of the week i'm sheila ray gregoire i'm rebecca gregoire linden back i'm joanna sawatsky and we've been called heretics Hi, Hi, Sheila, Rebecca, Joanna. (laughs) (laughs) This is, uh, I think, our first sort of group heretic squad. uh, It's a a Trinitarian squad. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I love that. There you go. Female Trinitarian squad here. That's going to make people so happy. The mother, the daughter, and I guess that makes me the spirit. Yes, we have the mother, the spirit, and the and the, and the, the daughter Trinity here. This is going to make people so happy. Uh, well, welcome, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, uh, all of you. We're very, very excited to talk to you guys about um, why is it that people might call you heretic? And I don't know which of you want to start. Sheila, do you want to kind of start off and explain what that's all about? Well, we're not just heretics; we're Jezebels. We're really bad. <laughs> Because what we're doing is we're saying that the evangelical bestsellers about sex and marriage are like gross <laughs> and wrong. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I laugh in, in total solidarity there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, uh, I'm with you. I, I kind of agree on that. So how are they wrong? What's so wrong about them? Well, I, I I blog, this is Sheila speaking, and I blog it to Love, Honor, and Vacuum. I've done that for years, just talking about how to make marriage passionate, not just a giant to-do list. And I've been producing so much content about how to make sex great. And it seemed like no matter what I said, everyone had the same problems. And so in 2019, I did something really radical. I actually read another marriage book because <laughs> I never used to read other books because I was afraid of plagiarizing. And so I read Love and Respect. And it was as if a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I just couldn't believe what it said. Like the sex chapter, and I will summarize the sex chapter for you. It said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. He needs physical release. If he doesn't get it, he's probably going to have an affair. Most affairs are caused by women not having sex. And Mm. as a woman, you need to understand his lust problem and sympathize with it if you expect him to understand your body image issues. Okay. And that's all it said about sex. That was the whole thing. I have no <laughs> words, but I have so many words about that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, well, yeah. Yeah. And so we we wrote we wrote a series of blog posts about how bad love and respect was. And then we heard back from all of these women who said that it that book enabled abuse in their marriage. So Joanna mm-hmm. 
made this amazing, pretty report to focus on the family because they support love and respect. And we thought that they would listen to us and they didn't. And so we thought, Hmm. you know what, if they won't listen to a couple hundred women, maybe they'll listen to 20,000. Yeah. So we decided to survey 20,000 women and find out how our evangelical teachings have affected marriage and sex. Wow. Oh my goodness. And tell us a little bit about what you found. Please. So we ended up evaluating a variety of different teachings that are prevalent in evangelicalism. So a a key example is all men struggle with lust. It is every man's battle. Um, And we found that these ideas are really, really common in evangelicalism. I would say it's pretty much in the water. And what we found was that then when we correlated those beliefs with outcomes in marital and sexual satisfaction, we found that having these beliefs was actually making people's marriages and sex lives worse. Yeah, Yeah. we were finding elevated rates of sexual pain, lower rates of orgasm. This is Rebecca now, by the way, for anyone listening in. Uh, We were finding all, all the things you don't want in your sex life, you got more of. And all the things that you wanted more of, you got less. You were less aroused, fewer orgasms, more pain, more distrust, more feelings of emotional distance while you're having sex. Uh, Women were more likely to have a lower libido with some of these teachings. It just is a whole mess. And so we started to speak out about it. And unfortunately for all of the people who don't like us, we're not just doing it from an opinion anymore. We actually have data, which is why uh, even more so uh, we're expecting to get a lot of Jezebel and heretic comments because uh, it gets really <laughs> dicey for people when it's not just, well, we think we have a theological difference from you. It's no, we talked, we looked at 20,000 women and we found that some of the things in these books make women almost twice as likely to suffer from sexual pain or, you know, 37% less likely to orgasm. And it's just so great to be able to attack this, not just from a theological or um, kind of, like philosophical perspective, but with cold, hard numbers, you know, like, do you want your wife to orgasm? Then maybe don't read these books. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you're, that you're approaching this um, with respect and value for female pleasure, Mm -hmm. because I can imagine, I might be wrong, but I can imagine just um, in in my similar conversations in conservative evangelicalism, um, there's a lot of people who actually may not care if their wives or, or a lot of men who may not really care yeah. if their wives orgasm or not, because the focus tends to be on male pleasure. Um, yeah. Am I wrong about that? Or is there, have you found that there's some truth to that? Absolutely. Um, actually, as early as the 1970s, there's research that shows that conservative Christian women have elevated rates of vaginismus, which is a form of sexual dysfunction in which women are often unable to have penetrative sex because of involuntary spasms of the vaginal wall. And no one has really done research that we can find until us about why. Um, But essentially what we found is that evangelicalism has elevated male pleasure over female pain. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is our women are like almost doubly as likely, I think uh, the numbers were, to experience sexual pain. But all of our resources are about don't deprive him of his needs. If you don't have sex, he'll watch pornography. Um, He has a need that you can never fully understand because it's just so great. So we have women who are more likely to be in so much pain 
They can't even physically have sex. And these same women are being told, if you don't have sex, you can't possibly understand what you're doing to your husband. So what does that say to the woman who may not even know the word vaginismus, who might not even know this because no one's talking about it? You know, we did a search on Focus on the Family. They had all sorts of articles on erectile dysfunction. You know how they (laughs) have vaginismus? You want to guess? None. They had none. Thank yeah. you very much. They had one article where they briefly mentioned postpartum sexual pain, but it was uh, only in passing. And it was this idea of just, you know, hopefully it'll get better. Wow. Oh, my gosh. This, this is so fascinating. And I, actually, I'm so glad um, that you decided to take it beyond just the personal and go into the, the research, because as you said, they may not listen to three of you, but hopefully people will start listening to, what did you say, 20,000? 20,000. Yep. Yeah. So now you start off the book uh, by saying that one of the biggest problems that that leads to these kinds of problems um, is that uh, sex, we define sex wrong in the church. And so can I ask you to explore that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Okay. This is Sheila speaking here. And if I were to ask you, did you have sex last night? Don't worry, I'm not actually going to ask you that. But if I were (laughs) to ask you that, okay, you would think that I was really nosy and everything, but you would also be picturing something pretty specific, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I can use the real words here, you know, you're probably picturing something like, did he put his penis into her vagina and move around until he climaxed? Because that tends to be what we think of as that is sex. Like heterosexual focused on male, the male act. Right, because... It's focused on me because if you notice that definition, she's not necessarily doing anything. I mean, she could be lying there counting ceiling tiles, making tomorrow's grocery (laughs) list, like whatever it is. Her pleasure isn't even isn't even important there. And let me tell you a number that I want everyone to remember who's listening to this podcast. Okay, you ready? Yep. Forty (laughs) seven. Okay, I want you to remember the number forty seven because that is our orgasm gap. And what I mean by that is that 48% of women say that they almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter, but 95% of men do. Right. So we have a 47-point orgasm gap. <laughs> and, and that is particular, particular to the crowd that you surveyed or across the board? Um, I'll let Joanna take that. Yeah, so that orgasm gap that we identified is by comparing um what we found for Christian women. So we looked at 20,000 women. And then we've also now recently done a study of 3,000 men and 95% of men orgasm almost all the time or all the time. And that orgasm gap is typical actually of heterosexual sex. Uh, You don't find the same orgasm gap when you're looking um, at how much women are able to climax when they masturbate or at um, lesbian sex. Mm. So this doesn't seem to be about how much women can orgasm. It's about what's happening in heterosexual sex. Also, um, it is this the orgasm gap that we found, although, of course, we did talk to primarily Christian um, women. uh, It is around the same as what other studies have found. Other studies have found that women tend to orgasm anywhere as low as 37 percent up to somewhere around 63 percent in heterosexual relationships. So our, our average was right in the middle there. So we've got this orgasm gap. So if our definition of sex is intercourse and we have this huge orgasm gap, the other thing that we found is that of the women who can orgasm, very few of them orgasm through intercourse alone. Usually you need a lot more. (laughs) 
like you need a lot of foreplay or there's other routes to orgasm, which tend to be better for women. So if we I are need defining- you to say all that again, because everyone needs to hear that one more time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so listen, Sheila, if you wanted 30% of women who can orgasm only through intercourse, if you want to throw that in, yeah. if you want to have the number. Sure. So if you look at the women who can orgasm, only 30% of them orgasm through intercourse alone. That means that they need more stuff. They need the foreplay stuff. And a lot of women find that there are other routes to orgasm that are a lot more reliable. So if we are defining sex as only intercourse, we're really defining sex from what makes men feel good primarily, and we're leaving out women's experience. And not only that, I think we're missing the biblical view of sex. Because you know, if you look at Genesis 4 verse 1, I remember hearing this in the King James Version when I was in junior high, like the, the pastor opens up his huge King James Version Bible and he reads, and Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived unto them a son, right? And, and us and all of our 13-year-old friends were just giggling so much the pew is shaking because that's hilarious. Like Adam knew his wife. But if you look at the Hebrew there, it's it's the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me. Yes. And God was saying that sex is not just physical. It's supposed to be deeply intimate too. So if we take our definition of sex and expand it to what we think the Bible's really talking about, sex is not just one-sided intercourse. Sex is supposed to be mutual and intimate and pleasurable and life-giving, not soul-crushing. And that's what a lot of our resources are missing. You know, so the the focus on um, the female experience, um, I'm, I'm loving this because it's also reorienting um, the, from the male gaze to the female gaze, mm-hmm. right? Like the male gaze of um, evaluating women's bodies and or experiences or not only from their perspective. So I see you reorienting that, like what what is the female gaze in this and what is this all about? One of the things that is just occurring to me is um, in the Genesis story, when the angels come to visit Sarah and Abraham to tell them yet again, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughs behind the tent. She laughs. And one way we can translate that or understand what she says, um, it's something like, am I, am I even going to bear a child now in my old age? But she's probably referring to pleasure. And aren't we too old for my husband to now give me pleasure <laughs> in our old in our old age? And so she's kind of saying like, I, "This guy's too old. This is not gonna. This is not gonna happen. I can't have pleasure. <laughs> therefore, have a child, right?" <laughs> and so I love that interpretation of that of that Genesis story um, where Sarah does get to have pleasure, even though she's beyond quote unquote childbearing years. Mm-hmm. And so like bringing just bringing that full circle. So I, I want to offer that for um, for listeners as well, that this is not um, this is not only about procreation, which you guys haven't talked about at all. Um, you guys, which you Trinitarian ladies have not spoken about <laughs> at all in this, which I love. But so I'm kind of curious in all this, you know, you've done all this wonderful, like fascinating research about consequences of purity culture. Uh, what else are the evangelical books um, leaving out besides only saying, you know, women, your your men are going to go look at pornography if you don't put out? What, what else was missing in there that you felt gaps needed to be filled? Yeah, because we have all these really scary messages, like what you just said, like, if you don't put out, he's going to watch porn, he's going to have an affair. But one of the most telling things that we realized when we were reading these books is that that never actually mentions two really important things. And some of them mention this, but especially the marriage books don't actually 
say that women can have physical release too. So a lot of our marriage books talk a lot about Mm -hmm. men's physical release, but they do not mention that women can orgasm. And that's the thing. They can talk about how women can enjoy sex sometimes, Mm. but they talk about physical release for men and they don't mention physical release for women. Instead, you have books (laughs) like Love and Respect actually saying, if your husband is typical, he has a need you do not have. Give him release later. Yeah. Um, And it actually it actually says he needs physical release the way you need emotional release. What is emotional release exactly? Like, are we all dancing around a fire screaming a primal scream or something? (laughs) I don't even know. Exactly. Are y'all just like sitting in our bathtub with ice cream, sobbing while we watch, like, you know, Pride and Prejudice for the 74th time? Is that emotional release? Yeah. But that's one of the big things that they just don't mention. And so as you're giving women these horrifying messages about, you know, how they have to fear their husbands and they have to fear, um, you know, what happens if they don't give up sex, they're also not being told, you know, sex can feel good for you. But the other one that they miss out on that's even more concerning is we did uh, one of the prongs of our research was we did a systematic review of the best selling Christian sex and marriage books out there. And we created a 12 point rubric based on our research and what healthy sexuality looks like. And one of those points was consent. Is Mm. consent mentioned Mm. or is consent actively worked against? Um, And our marriage books in particular and the sex books, very few of them said anything positive about how a woman should, you know, have a way to say no to sex or that you can't force your partner to do anything that they don't want to do or that you don't have to have sex no matter what. It right. didn't mention consent. Uh, very few of our best-selling books even mm-hmm. mention the concept that we have autonomy over our bodies and that right. if your spouse is forcing you to do things you don't want to do, that is wrong and that is not Christ-like. Rather, what they emphasize instead is the duty sex message, is that if you are a mm-hmm. good Christian, you must be committed to having sex two to three times a week for the rest of your life. That's what it says in Sheet Music by Kevin Lehman. Um, As well, you have books like Every Man's Battle, who says if he doesn't have sex every 72 hours, in essence, you are creating Satan's temptation for him because his testicles get a little testy after 72 hours. 72 hours? hours. You can't even go away for a weekend. (laughs) Oh, 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 and guess what? If she has her period, Kevin Lehman says that you you should give him a hand job or oral sex because Mm -hmm. it's a really difficult time for him. Yeah, and postpartum. Postpartum (laughs) says that as well. And that's the really concerning thing is when we're having all these messages in these books, when we portray these messages of you must have sex, if you don't have sex, he'll watch pornography. If you don't have sex, you're a bad Christian. If you don't have sex and he has an affair, well, it's totally your fault, pretty much. When we give women all these messages, first of all, they're just toxic in and of themselves. But when you pair that with the understanding that these women are also not being told that their pleasure matters and they are not being told that consent is a thing and that marital rape exists, when you put those two things together, it becomes very clear how we have an epidemic in marriages of women whose libidos are completely crushed, whose wills are completely crushed, who feel like they are just trapped in a corner when it comes to sex, who, you know, just kind of grit their teeth and shut their eyes and just wait for it to be over. And they put themselves through this day after day after day, trying to be the good Christian wife that they were told they had to be because they were given an idea of marriage and sex that looked nothing like Christ and was all about using another person for your own lustful desires and thinking it's okay because you gave her a ring. Wow. This is so good. I got to tell you, I am so 
very, very glad we're having this conversation. So uh, I can I ask, before before we move on, can no. I tell you can I tell you about Aunt Matilda? Oh please. Okay. <laughs> I, so. I feel compelled to know now, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. Sheila dedicated the book to Aunt Matilda. I think that's important to know. Cool. Yes. Yes. Now, what you also need to understand, a little bit of person, this is a little bit too TMI, okay? But there's no such thing on this podcast. Oh, yes. So when I was married way back in 1991, I was given the book that everybody was given who was married in 1991, who was an evangelical. And that book was The Act of Marriage by Tim and Beverly LaHaye. (laughs) I almost almost brought that up, but thank you for mentioning that book. Yes. This is free left behind. Yes. And um, very brief. Yeah. And and in those days, we did not have Kindles. And so you were able to read books in the bathtub. And that's where I did all my reading. And I read this book, and it really disturbed me. And I couldn't figure out why exactly, but I didn't like it. I know now why after we did the survey, but at the time I didn't know. And so by about two thirds of the way through, I drowned it. I, I held it under the water until it was dead. You killed and it. And then I, <laughs> yes. And then I put it in the ba- in the garbage can. And I wish I had done that earlier and had never read it at all because it really did mess me up. And I, I think partly because it gave me the obligation sex message, which is so highly correlated with vaginismus, which is, which was a large part of my story. But there was one incident from that book that I remember, and it was about Aunt Matilda. Now, Aunt Matilda had a niece, and she was getting married. And as she got married, Aunt Matilda came and told the niece to be careful of sex because it was a terrible thing. And Tim LaHaye mm-hmm. said how awful it was that Aunt Matilda had ruined sex for this niece by telling her how horrible sex was. But he, he explained that when Aunt Matilda got married, her her husband on her wedding night held her down while she was kicking and screaming and raped her. And for yeah. the rest of her marriage, he continued to rape her because she just didn't like sex and wouldn't give it to him any other way. And they never learned how to really enjoy the gift of sex. And wasn't this sad? Because here was Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband. So Tim LaHaye literally said... Oh. That the rapist was equally unhappy as his rape victim. Poor guy. And I read the fourth edition of The Act of Marriage, which was published in the late 90s for this project. Um, We were reading the the fourth edition. And that means that that book went through four editions and nobody thought, maybe we should take that anecdote out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. and this is so, it is so, um, when you, when you, when you give these kinds of examples, um, it is really, uh, I mean, obviously this is the reason why a book like what you guys have written, uh, is so needed and necessary. So let's say that people listening to this podcast right now, men and women, um, they, they agree with you. They're like, yep, you're right. This is a problem. This is, this is a, uh, bad messaging. This is not the right way to think about this thing. This has caused a lot of damage. What can they do? What can we do now to, to course correct if they find themselves in the middle of this kind of uh, narrative? Yeah. The problem with these messages is that we've been taught a lie. And the way we combat a lie is by knowing and seeking truth, right? We did part of our research was also to do a lot of focus groups with women who had overcome um, problematic beliefs, you know, women who had decades of vaginismus, uh, who hadn't orgasmed for, you know, 20 years of marriage and asking them, how did you actually get there? Right. How did you get to a point where you not only could, you know, handle sex, but actually wanted it and enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, the answer was the same. 
They just had to figure out where was the rot and they had to get rid of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I will say um, for sexual pain, just a quick thing, do see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Uh, We do know that (laughs) approximately a third of women in their lifetime will experience sexual pain. And we always have to plug that. There are treatments. Please seek them. Pelvic floor physiotherapy. But um, in general terms, if you're a husband or a wife who's just struggling with sex, where it's just not what you were hoping, or you're just disappointed, or maybe you're feeling, oh dear, I'm the reason that this isn't okay. Maybe I did something wrong. You know, getting into a habit of identifying what negative beliefs we have about sex, whether it's I'm entitled to sex as a man, or I don't have choice. I have to give him sex as a woman, whatever it is, taking that thought and reframing it to understand, wait, is this respectful? Is this dignifying? And does this honor my spouse? And then reframing it in that way, saying, no, I am not entitled to the use of another person's body. And so it is wrong for me to coerce my partner, my spouse into anything by being grouchy, by mumbling and grumbling, by threatening them, by you know being passive aggressive or giving the silent treatment. All of that is wrong because it is not honoring my the person I love, it is not honoring their God-given bodily autonomy. And I think that just that kind of um, rethinking about this can be so helpful. Um, a lot of the women we talked to, uh, the big one they had to get over was this obligation sex message, this idea that they didn't have a choice. There was one woman we talked to, we call Sandra in the book, who had vaginismus for a very, very long time, who didn't enjoy sex at all. And what she said is when she had sat down with her husband and actually explained to him how she thought about sex, how she was scared whenever he asked for sex because she knew she wasn't able to say no or else she wouldn't be a good Christian wife anymore or he might watch porn or when she actually explained that to him and he said, oh my goodness, please, no, don't have sex because you feel forced to. I don't want to force you to have sex. Goodness, I had no idea you were thinking like that when they had that conversation. And then he actually gave her permission, not only give her permission, um, like where he knew she had permission, but he showed her that she was able to say no. You know, he would stop sex in the middle of it if he could tell that she wasn't into it. He would take Uh initiative and say, no, I'm not interested in this. I want this to be about both of us. And if you work together to really get back to what a honoring, dignifying, and respectful view of sexuality is, that will mean much more than just making sure you are collecting and giving out your dues. And that will become something more about, it's a profoundly humanizing experience, in other words. If you understand sex as a humanizing experience rather than an objectifying one, it just makes all the difference. And it really does because we get back to understanding that this is not something that you're not allowed to do and then you have to do. This is something that has a gift and we are called to lifelong chastity. And that means you don't get to only objectify or lust after or assault one person for the rest of your life. You never get to do any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if your sex looks like any of those things, it's time to start to deconstruct. It's time to start to deconstruct what you think sex is and reconstruct an idea of sex and an ethic of sex that is, again, profoundly honoring, respectful and dignifying of the other and yourself. Yeah, that's that's so good. So the three of you are the co-authors of this book. Tell us a little bit about it. Where can people find it? Um, When when is the big day where people can um, get all of this wonderful information for themselves? Sure. Well, we hope that you will all want to pick up The Great Sex Rescue. It's a really fun read. I kind of 
feel like it's when you read it, you're it's like you're watching a train wreck. You think it can't possibly get any worse than this. And then it does. But <laughs> but we're hoping that it's also really validating for a lot of people who have just heard these terrible messages and they haven't known how to deconstruct them. So we we help you do that. We help you deconstruct and then reframe and rescue. And it's a lot of fun. And you can find it at, the, at greatsexrescue.com. There's all our links to our study and where you can get it. And of course, it's on Amazon, christianbooks.com, anywhere like that. Great Sex Rescue. Awesome. This has been such a wonderful, healing, amazing, eye-opening and inspiring conversation. I am so, so glad. I really thank you from now on to just call yourselves the the Trinity, the female Trinity. Uh, <laughs> this, was, this was so good. Uh, Sheila, Rebecca, Joanna, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for this book and this research and uh, for the work you're doing. Um, you know, more power to you. Go for it. And I hope that many more women and men um, will really pay attention to this research and to the insights in your book. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. That was great. Um, and so also very proud of you for writing such a brave book on such a uh, important topic. I feel so liberated around sexuality now. Well, that's good because that we need liberation. We do. We need that. Yep. Yeah. So thank you for, for coming on. Yep. I love the whole concept of sexual liberation, even though they bound me and gagged me and tossed me in a closet while you were doing the interview. But you like that. I thought that's what I thought. Thing. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was your thing. That's your, that's your thing. Someone had a feather over there. Yeah. Every, shh, shh, be very, oh, very no, quiet. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I guess it's time to get into the meat of this episode. And I don't know, Katie, I, I feel like we, we got to have you kick it off because it's clobbering time. It's, right. clobbering, it's clobbering time. And I know uh, you got you got some things to say. Yeah, let me let me sit on my drink here with the, the blood of a thousand men. Yeah, no, um, no, I love I, I love men. So we wanted this is part two of the women and clobbering passage. We kind of talked about some of the scriptures last time in Corinthians and first Timothy and um, that have consistently being used to um, keep women in a particular kind of role. So we want to break that open now and talk about some of the passages that are women affirming. Maybe one of the passages we just need to leave behind. What are the ones that maybe feel obsolete to us? And talk about different ways um, of maybe of even conceiving of gender uh, and gendered experiences uh, in the here and now. Um, so let, let's get to it. Let's throw it wide open. Um, what I can talk about what's affirming to me, um, but this is you know a, definitely a round table here. So yeah, what, what would be the passages that come to mind? Derek, I know you mentioned in the last episode, uh, The Woman at the Well. Yeah, The Woman at the Well, John chapter four. But before I get started, I want to say something. In my preaching days, as an apostolic leader, as a bishop, as an apostle, when I wore the vestments and all of that shit, I was very, very affirming of women in ministry. And, and I'm going to tell you something. There, there, there's a difference between uh, accepting and affirming, because basically accepting is just tolerating, but affirming is celebrating. And I absolutely yeah. celebrate women in ministry. And the woman at the well was the first person outside of the 12 who Jesus actually ordained and sent. Yeah. And, 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 and that, to me, that says a lot because not only was the woman at the well the first, but I'm going to jump ahead and say that Mary Magdalene, first woman to preach the resurrection, Jesus was yep. all about girl power. He was all about it. 
And and so so basically, I want to say to anyone who would exclude women from ministry, I'm trying to say it without being insulting, but just you know, just I, just just get fucked. Just get. I was about to say get fucked. Get fucked. Hey <laughs> hey, get fucked for a thousand, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. All those people can be part of my drink in front of me uh, in the the future. So so with caution, everyone. Yeah. So, you know, Woman at the Well is uh, definitely an inspiring story for me. Mary Mary Magdalene is always a winner around here, you know, uh, definitely is a positive example of Jesus affirming. So I think, yeah, it seems like we're all agreed, right? Jesus is affirming women um, in the ancient world and not in a holds bar kind of way, but in a full out, like, go forth, do, do your thing kind of way. Yeah, actually, it's the one. It's the one thing that is to me. It's so obvious that Jesus goes out of his way to be so affirming to women, and it's actually so depressing to me that it's the one thing that it seems that um, those that came after him, the, the apostles and disciples after Jesus, uh, kind of left it in their hands. That's the one thing they didn't really seem to pick up on or carry forward. Almost right away, it seems like um, the men started saying, oh, "Yeah, yeah, we got this. We'll take over." That's sad to me. It, it remind, uh, David Hayward, a uh, friend of the show, of course, has a uh, a cartoon on that where it's like Mary is is announcing the resurrection, and then the men are like, "Hey, hey, hey we got it from yeah, here. Thanks, yeah. we got it." And, from and here. you know that that's yeah. like a pattern in church history because the first century church without women, the first century, first century church has no traction, right? And and so basically it was like the women do all of the heavy lifting and then all, and then the men come come along and write epistles and shit. Oh yeah. Yeah. No dude. Yeah. When you go through and I'm sorry, I think we talked about this last time, but it's like when you go through and look at what, even what's in your new Testament, what's recorded in the actual new Testament documents, you have the true letters of Paul and the book of acts. Uh, and even in, you know, the gospels, but you have our women like Lydia, Phoebe, Dorcas, Junius, um, Eunice, you know, on and on. by name, and Paul is saying they were doing this the same work I have been doing, which is what the work of an apostle. Mm-hmm. That they, they they are they fill. Uh, you can find examples of women who are deacons, who are um, you know we talk about apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers. You know the whole uh, fivefold ministry. There are examples of women filling all five of those roles yep. in the New Testament in your Bible. And it's, uh, again, it's something where if we're willing to look and see, you'll actually see, I I mean, I think I remember someone once said, you know, the only pastors, if you're going to say pastors being people who are leaders of the church, the only pastors mentioned by name, or at least let's say the majority of quote unquote pastors mentioned by name in the New Testament, they're Mm -hmm. all women. It's the church that met in the home of all of these other women. And, you know, Timothy's mother and grandmother, like it's, it's a really female driven movement, not a hundred percent, but very much women uh, involved in in hosting the the church and you know prophesying, teaching, preaching, evangelizing, um, all of that. You know like, that's what goes on today. Now it, it's like the modern church. If if you take women out of the equation of the modern church and say, you know, listen, you you guys just sit back and listen. You know, if you if you took that that one passage of scripture and applied it universally and just tell all the women, Hey, you just sit back and listen. The church would fold. It would, or, it would or, or absolutely Baptist. fold. That'd be a Baptist. Church. Or it wouldn't even be Baptist. It wouldn't even exist because shit, even the Baptists have women doing things. 
You know, well, that's they, they run they the auxiliaries can, yeah. and all of these other things that 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 basically cool. uphold the whole apparatus. It, it, yeah. it without women, without and 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 here's the thing. This is the other thing too. We talk about women in ministry, women in leadership. Ministry is a very broad category. To use the Matthew Di Stefano uh, phrase, it's a spectrum, right? And, and so yeah. there are many, there are an infinite number of points along this spectrum of what ministry is. And and so if you if you were to say women don't women uh, are not in ministry, well, you know, then the ministry of the bake sale goes away. You, you follow what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be sexist or anything there, but. Um, you know, all of these things are ministries, you know, the ministry of finance, ministry of outreach or, you know, mi uh, missionary, whatever, all these, all of these different auxiliaries that, that women participate in that are not in the pulpit. These are essential. Yeah. So we have, um, there's ordained ministry and there's non-ordained ministry and it's, it's all ministry. I think it's all, yeah. I think it's all ordained, Kathy. Yeah. Uh, Katie, sorry. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, there's, you know, but yeah, I mean, like for, for me in particular, I was called to an or, you know, to be ordained like in an ordained ministry um, that has its particular roles, responsibilities, um, some privileges, some not privileges as well. Um, and, you know, I, I get comments all the time. Oh, no, your ordination isn't real. It's not blah, 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 blah. And, you know, most of the time, those kind of those kind of roll off my my shoulders. Uh, I don't really care that much. Um I think for women in ministry, it's or just for women in general, women have to be intersectional, like with the way we operate in the world is as as intersectionally um, as an ordained woman in ministry that increases like a lot, right? Like it's just navigating all of the very, very male world that we live in um, as a woman and being able to be heard uh, and being able to speak to people in their context um, is a always evolving skill set. You know, it might be helpful also for us to, um, in addition to all the fabulous wealthy widows that were funding the Jesus movement, which absolutely, um, and practicing their autonomy uh, in that way, um, that might be really helpful kind of paradigm for listeners to, if we can see the women that we mentioned uh, in the early church, they're not only providing house space, they're providing funds, and they're providing leadership, and they're doing it um, somewhat on their own terms as far as we can see within the pages of the New Testament. So I find that you know, very powerful, um, a wonderful model. But one of the passages that's used to kind of keep, keep women in their place all the time is the uh, garden story, right? The Adam and Eve story. Uh, that might be a helpful one to talk about because I actually find that story very, very empowering. I'm kind of curious what your takes are on it. Well, I, first, I want to hear why you think it's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I find it empowering because the well, let's let's talk about how it's used to be disempowering, which is that um, Eve caused caused Adam to sin, that um, she gave him that she's kind of portrayed as a temptress, as a seductress, all of that. Um, all of that's nonsense. So what I'll recommend here, one of the one of the interpreters I find empowering is Marcus Borg reading the Bible again for the first time. Yeah. This isn't the first time I've mentioned it, but his chapter on this um, on this story is very helpful. But he talks about the the garden story as being the birth of consciousness. Mm. And when Eve, you know, when the woman takes this fruit, she um, she bites into it and she knows, she begins to know things. She begins to become more like God. And this is not a bad thing. This is about humans growing up. And she gives this to the man and together they begin to grow up. And growing up and becoming conscious, part of that is realizing things about your body, about sexuality. Mm. 
realizing you don't have on clothes and oh my gosh, what are we going to do? That's all part of the human experience. So very, I don't see, you know, I don't see this as a story at all about sins and it's not mentioned in the story, but Eve right. is like, hot damn, I'm going to bite into the apple because I want to know things. So Eve then is the mother of consciousness. She's, yeah. she's the wor- the oh. first woke sister. Yeah. She's the precursor to, precursor to Mary Magdalene. I love it. Yeah. I guess to me, honestly, when I, when I look at the Genesis story, I just see, obviously, I mean, I read it and I go, yeah, a man wrote this because um, a man is writing a story about how, oh, no, no, um, you know, everybody, everyone's descended from Adam, not from, not from a woman. You know, even the woman, Eve, came out of the man. Um, like, what bullshit? No, everyone is born is com- comes from a mother, from a, from a woman, from a womb. Everyone alive came from a womb. And it just feels like, well, that's, how can we tell the story in such a way that men are the most important thing? And it all actually started with a man. Okay, we'll have Adam be first. And then Eve comes out of Adam. And then hmm. so now. If you don't Eve, see Adam as being male, so though. Adam, you know? but yeah, but um, Adam is not really Adam. Adam is the Adam. He's the groundling. He's the earthling. I, w- I don't even want to say he. It's more of a, they, this isn't, this is not a being with gender. At the beginning of the story, this is an earth creature. Oh my God, was Adam trans? I think Adam wasn't even actually made. I think there's some cases that we can be made, um, uh, Derek. So in my upcoming edited volume, Transbiblical, I'm sure we'll be talking about this. But yeah, if we if we see that first human being, not as Adam, but as the Adam, as the earth being, and when the earth being becomes two, that's when we begin to get a differentiation of gender. So it, to me, it's not Eve being made out of Adam and like, what, how does that imply hierarchy anyway? It's that the, when, when there's two people, that's when we start to get this conversation. Okay. So can I, can I ask you a question or make sure, sure I'm understanding you? So is it, what you're saying is that in the beginning, when God made Adam, Adam was sort of this thing that at the time was sort of both Adam, both male and female. And then until Eve was pulled out of Adam, then now we have these two separate genders and sort of now, now there's two separate things that came out of the one conglomerate thing. Yeah. That's as we become, well, we can be very playful with the story in that way. So there, there's a lot of ancient stories about the first human being, being, um, being both sexes, being um, conjoined, being one being with multiple or all genders within. Um, and so I, I wrote an article not too long ago, or got published not too long ago on, uh, on this story and how trans women um, see themselves very much in this first human being, um, mostly in Genesis one, um, but then also some in Genesis two. So, yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's actually really fascinating. Uh, never, I've never heard that before, but I got to say right now, I already like it. And Katie Valentine jab, 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 and down goes Adam. <laughs> Adam goes down. So there's so there's my sister Eve, and then you know we could also talk about Lilith and the Lilith myths, but maybe maybe save that for another time. Uh, equally empowering, uh, equally empowering for women. You know, what? I got to say this: there's there's a TV show called Lucifer, and and I'm I have to say I'm really hooked on this show. But there's a there's a whole uh, segment in in uh, I think in the third season that deals with Eve and Lilith, and it's really amazing. Cool. I love I love me some Lilith uh, Lilith stories. She's just fodder for the feminist canon. Yeah, when it yeah. when it, for me when it comes to Adam and Eve, it's uh I don't think you can like separate the two and say, Oh, 
Eve's responsible for this fall because she tricked Adam or this and that. I, to me, I see it all, all of course, through like a Girardian lens and this fact that like our desires are wrapped up in each other. So we're, you know, it's all, it's all my medic and it's all interdividual rather than individual. So for me, it's always been kind of bullshit when you're like, oh, we, we, we need someone to place the blame on. We need, we need a, we need to scapegoat someone. I think, I think the whole, uh, that whole notion is BS. And, and, um, we always have to mention that the writer of the first creation story is different than the writer of the second creation story. So yes. in, in one narrative, male and female, man and woman, whatever you want to say are made at the same time. It's not till you get to the second narrative where, uh, Eve is, is created, I think even after the animals are named or something like that. Right. And it's just, it's, it, it's different. It's a different story. It's a different writer. Um, of course you're going to have a problem with that if you think just God wrote it, but you probably don't listen to the show. If you think that I'm not sure, <laughs> you know, there, there's yeah. another thing too, where, uh, God asks Adam, you know, where are you? Right. And, and you have to know that before, uh, Genesis three, before the end, up until that point, until it identifies Eve's name as Eve, that she too was Adam. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're not named until after not, the event. Right. Yeah. And, and, and actually, Adam gave the name. They, they, they both were Adam when God called. That's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, Matt, with your, um, you know, just kind of referring back, we only have like the woman being created from the man if we see that first creature as male. Sure. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah we, we, would, we, we would, we would, yeah, we would assume that because we, we are patriarchal in most right. of our cultures and, you know, so, I mean, that's just an assumption. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, but I, I love what yeah. Katie said that what, what you just said uh, earlier in your opening on this, Katie is eye opening. Yeah. I love So I, I love this story. I'm just actually. like, <laughs> I, I'll never look at Genesis the same again. As a matter of fact, I'll probably go back and actually read it just because of what you said. Yeah, actually, I want to say I will never look at Genesis again. There's some really so there's some really cool ancient art. I'll, I'll see if I can find it for when we post the episode and put it in our Facebook group. But there's some really cool art of trees of life in the ancient world. You know, the ancient Hebrews are not the only one uh, of trees of life and goat. And the the leaves are very curly, and they'll often have like ibexes or goats who are trying to eat the uh, tree. And there's all these connections between the leaves of the trees looking very much like pubic hair. And so the tree of life looking, uh, being um, a sort of metaphor for sexuality. And then when you look at other ancient iconography and see pubic hair on naked human forms, they look very much the same. And so there's a whole dimension of like sexuality with the tree of life too, of um, humankind opening up our sexuality in these very creative ways, not in ways that are patriarchal and repressive, which, you know, oh my gosh, it's, you know, listeners, women out there, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, So I, I, you know, I kind of see this Genesis story too, as a way for us to reclaim that which is God given and is good. Jesus, Katie, you're swinging like a heavyweight tonight. I can let you know. Yeah, if you, hey, if if you're if you're making Derek want to read the Bible, I mean, you must be doing something right. No, y'all y'all want to take some? Y'all want to take some Hebrew lessons? We could do that. No, no, no. You, no, you read you read right to uh, left. You know, I'm not you, doing you, that. You, know, you, you just went full Bible on me. You never go full Bible. <laughs> I, I actually want to step back and make maybe take a broader perspective on this and shift gears a little bit. And uh, take take us away from the Bible because, please. I Thank mean, you. honestly, like 
this comes back to, to one of those issues, and I'll probably say it on every clobber series episode we do. Like, uh, like when you really think about it, when it comes to this, who cares what the Bible says? Because when you leave, when you lead your life from experience, from direct experience, you don't sit here and look at the universe, the massive uh, scope of the universe, the massive scope of if there's a God, what God must be like, and be like, well, we better check your genitalia, whether you can lead or whether you can do this or that, because that's some bullshit. There's no way that the God of the universe, the cosmos, as as creative and wacky as n- nature is and, and amazing and awe-inspiring, you're going to sit here and say, hey, let's do a cup check before you can have this <laughs> job or before you can have that job. I mean, that's just like so absurd. So if our Bible is going to be used to do that cup check, like we don't need the Bible. No. If it's gonna if it's gonna be life affirming, like the, the the shit Katie's talking about, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I I would take even maybe further than what you're taking it. Although I'm not sure you disagree with me, but it's sort of like when I hear these kind of things too, I just feel like who gives a crap was people thought six thousand years ago in the Middle East in a very you know very simple kind of. Um, culture where like they didn't even know that how the sun worked and and the earth like you know what i mean like oh it's like oh we have to go look at look in the bible to see what those people thought way back then like on on certain things it doesn't really matter i mean if you're curious yeah you can read it and learn something and that's that's good not that it's all bad but on one level i just it bothers me that we're so often in many ways sort of like chained and restricted and enslaved by the Bible, mm-hmm. rather than like you're saying, Matt, like common sense. Like, come on, can you can you think for yourself? Can you determine for yourself like what is true? Can you do some self reflection? Can you see does this make sense? Um, and if it doesn't, then you know, dude, I, I you have a thing inside of you that is capable of showing you how to find truth. Uh, I think you shouldn't um, just like lay that aside and and just blindly go. Well, what's the Bible say? Well, I, I say that if, if if whatever you believe cannot withstand a Google search, it ain't worth believing. <laughs> <laughs> and and we have Google. It's like you know somebody somebody asked me this. Yeah. I, I posted something on social media, and they and, and they said, "Oh, you think you're better than the people in the Bible?" And there was a time in my life when I would have backpedaled away from that question, but now I'm like, "You're goddamn right, I am." Because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm healthier, I live longer, I eat better, I'm more educated, I have more tools, more technology, I have more shit at my disposal than these people ever dreamed of. So I have a flipping iPhone. Yeah, I mean, shit, you know, and I, with an iPhone, I have more power in my hand than the entire Apollo moon program. That's right. And you, and, you, so, and you tell me, oh, well, what does the Bible say? You know something? I'm going to say something here really harsh, but motherfuck what the Bible says. Honestly. Yay! Honestly. So y'all, real, y'all are real arrogant about it. I we are. Me. Yes, we are. Sorry. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's I, I do care what scripture says because I'm deeply curious, deeply curious enough to get a whole degree <laughs> in this. Right. So partly I, I do it for a living. Um, but. The ancient people, I believe, were at least as sophisticated as we are in their thought process and their philosophy. They didn't have access to all the science, of course, that we have. Um, but, you know, when we can kind of get into their heads a little bit and see things the way they thought they were um, from the information they have, I think we actually see that 
they're often very sophisticated. I think Genesis, you know, uh, two through four is an extremely sophisticated story. I don't like the way it's been interpreted. You know, what, Katie, I'll say new. I'll say life. nuance, but not sophisticated. I'll, I'll give you. All right. I'll give you nuance, but not. Sophisticated. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're as sophisticated as we can be given what we know. Um, I, I think I probably lack a lot of sophistication because there's a lot of things I could know that I just don't care about. Yeah, but you, but you know a lot of things about a lot of things. I mean, think about this. Okay, so you've studied in Greek and Hebrew, right? Indeed. So, okay, so how many, how many of the, how many of the people in the in the time of the Bible actually studied in Greek and Hebrew? Is, oh, they spoke too many. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, not, let, let's let's go back to the Old Testament first of all. How many people studied in Greek and Hebrew in the Old Testament? That 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 number probably goes asymptotically close to zero. Do you mean that they could read I, and write? I, no, I'm saying I'm saying in the Old Testament there was no study in Greek. Well, well, yeah. Right? No so, 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 so let me let me let me fast forward to <laughs> let me fast forward to the New Testament. Then you 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 have. Uh, uh, you know, you have some that are that are studied in the, both the Hebrew and the Greek, but because literacy was not widespread, multilingualism probably wasn't either. You you just have to kind of you know lay the things out together, and and honestly, you know, I I just think that we know more about science, we know more about meteorology, we know more about biology, chemistry, psychology, we know more about everything than these people ever dreamed of. It, 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 listen, if you took somebody from the Bible days and dropped them in 2021 and didn't show them any of the tech, just like find somebody that could read and show them the books, they'd be fucking astounded at what they see. So sure. So information though, yeah, I mean, is well, not sophistication. Well, no, actually, actually information and sophistication, I think, kind of go hand in hand because the, your level of sophistication has to do with your level of understanding. And, 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 and they, they didn't have a broad universe of things with which to really be sophisticated about. I mean, most, oh, most, yeah. most people didn't travel more than, you know, 10 miles from where they yeah, were born. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, so you, you have a lot of, you have a lot of, you have a lot of people who aren't, um, don't have those opportunities, but you do have, you do have a lot of people who do. Yeah, but it, And uh, in a well-versed world, a well-traveled world, um, definitely people in cities would have been bilingual, trilingual, um, speaking Latin, speaking Greek, you know, in the New Testament, Latin, Greek, um, and local languages of wherever they were. Yeah, but then again, but, we're, you know, we're talking about me, that, that one little geographic area also. It, well, sure, yeah, so, just like today, you know. Yeah, someone in someone in India is probably well versed in Hindi and their local language and in English. Yeah, that's right. not a not a so, problem for me to think about. But in relationship to women in the Bible, um, why do we care about, or why do I care about what Scripture says? And um, for me, I and I I would urge um, every woman, every non-binary uh, person listening uh, to this episode to at least consider this for their own lives. Um, I have to be free to say. Um, in scripture, I am empowered by that story. Cool. I'm always looking for where the threads are popping up that um, show dissent, that show something against the grain, that shows something against the norm, like that interpretation of Eve, like jail sticking a tent peg um, through the through the guy's head. Yeah, uh, she's my judges. hero. <laughs> yeah, like Deborah being you know Deborah being a judge um, 
you know, that doesn't seem to be restricted by gender norms. So I'm always looking for what goes against the grain. And then I'm always looking for the passages where I can say, this is not of God. This is, a, this is an example in the Bible that's a how not to passage. And, the, and scripture is filled with those. And we have to be willing to put those aside and say, some, you know, someone either got this really wrong and it doesn't apply to me today. Um, and, and we have other things that we can draw on for inspiration or this part, you know, does inspire me. And it's what you do with that inspiration. So every time, you know, in the in the conservative evangelical culture, we talk about biblical womanhood. And I, you know, I hear this all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm a biblical woman. I'm striving to be a biblical woman. I'm like, here's your fucking tent peg. Go to work. Because there's biblical woman means nothing. There's no model. There's no one model. Right. So what people do is, of course, as we know, they take select passages that are the how fucking not to do this in scripture. And that's what they're using to, de to describe something that's a biblical woman. If you want to be a biblical woman, go against the norms. Right. Yep. And I and I love I yeah. love that about you, Katie, is that you you'll go back and dig in the scripture for what for for the, uh, the 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 contrarian aspect, and 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 I really appreciate that about your scholarship. The the my problem with with mainstream theology is that most people don't do that. They'll 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 go through it and they'll look at it in a very linear, very flat way and say, well, this is just the way it is, and they'll say, okay, what's the example of biblical womanhood? And 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 immediately they go to the Proverbs thirty one woman and they say okay that's the exhaustive reference yeah that one yeah, yeah. Proverbs thirty one gets all over the place yeah yeah I, I really like Katie your I mean that's a great perspective just to say you know what if um if, when you say biblical woman what if what you meant like you're saying is let, let's look at the examples like let's say um you know Mary who decided, you know, rather than going into the kitchen with my sister and making food for the guys, I'm going to sit here with the other guys and, and sit at Jesus' feet like, like a disciple, which is something only men are allowed to do. Um, and then Jesus would affirm that and say, you know what? She's chosen something better and what she's chosen will not be taken away from her. There you go. Um, you know, they break the norms, do the thing that everyone says you're not supposed to do. Um, I, I think that's a great, great advice. Yep. Like if we're going to say biblical, then let's, let's look at examples of women and there are some amazing examples in the scriptures of women um, who completely blew the doors off and said, you know, I'm not going to conform and I'm going to, you know, hey, do what I can Jeze do. Jezebel is in the Bible, right? So she's a biblical woman. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, but that, yeah. whole, that whole Jezebel thing, man, has just gotten, it's become this, this kind of epithet of uh, the kind of a woman that, you know, a lot of conservative Christians will point to. And basically what they would say is a woman who would be like Mary who would break the norms and try to do the things that men are doing, they would say, oh, no, she's a Jezebel but because because she is breaking the mold. And that's just wrong. That's not. What yeah, but there's well, see that, no, uh, scripture is full of women that have broken the norm. Sorry, Matt. I, I, and, no. And and then and the, the, to the point, like some of them have broken the norm and are champion. And but the Bible is, see that this, this is the point about like saying something's biblical is pointless. Like it doesn't, yeah. there's not like, there's not one type of woman. There's not one type of like woman that's championed in the Bible. Like we have to do our due diligence on what is life affirming or, or, or death affirming mm -hmm. and, and, and like, you know, get rid of the shit that's death affirming. Like there's no such thing as biblical just because some, I mean, like the Bible's all over the map on a lot of different yep. things. So you can't just use this moniker. Oh, it's biblical as yes. if like, Oh, uh, open and shut case. I, I, you know, I rest my case, Your Honor. Like, 
fuck out of here with that. You know, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I got two words for those folks. You know what they are? These nuts. <laughs> Thank you, Derek. Um, so, Matt, I'm going to bring this back around to body positivity because I think everyone, all genders could probably use this. Um, saying it's biblical is kind of akin to saying, um, I need to get my bikini body ready. You know what? You have on a body, just go put on a bikini. It's ready. Ooh, like, there there's no, there's no one model, right? About this. Um, Somebody made thinking, that quickly. Oh yeah. Um, it's a, I stole it. I didn't, I didn't create that, oh. but yeah, I stole it from a meme, but the, um, whatever, you know, I have someone close to me in my life who was in a, um, a marriage and she kept on saying she was trying to be a biblical wife. And I was like, Ooh, that's just not in you that, <laughs> that I know you and that's, is not going to work. And, uh, it did not work. It did not work. It pretended to work. And this is what's, you know, heartbreaking to me because I, I speak, speak to women, see women all the time who are trying so hard um, to fit this weird, um, God, weird American conservative evangelical perception and making themselves miserable and just giving themselves disorders over it. Um, and so that this liberatory thread, you know, I think that we're picking up on is um, th- that is what is of God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And speaking of, of God, heretichappyhour.com is of God. You like how I did that transition there? Oh, beautiful. Like a pro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's of God, but uh, it, it's a website that I want everyone listening to to go check out heretichappyhour.com. Check out the bookstore. We have books from uh, many, many, many of our heretics of the week. They are typically about 15% off a regular retail that you're going to get out, uh, out, you know, out there elsewhere. They support the show. Plus, we got a, a store with T-shirts and, and pillows. I just, I just got a home and I picked up one of those new pillows. Honor the Lord. Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Is like a photo of this? Oh, I it it is not shipped yet, but uh, I will definitely be sharing that on socials. Yes. And uh, but I want everyone to go to HereticHappyHour.com, check it out, take the quiz, do all that stuff, give it a browse. Cool. Um, and I'm also making a, a, a unilateral decision uh, for us all in, after, in our bonus material today. Let's talk about Thecla, who is an early Christian, early Christian woman, badass. She's not, in the, she's not in the New Testament, but she's in all those documents right after. And then I'll also talk about her in the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, which is exclusive to our patrons, who will get to hear the bonus material on Thecla. <laughs> and we also have a Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. That's for everyone. So if you're not a member of that group, come on. We've got a bunch of heretics all talking about heretical things uh, in a safe, loving, and sarcastic community. That's exactly right. And, you know, uh, we just want to stop and say thank you so much. If you are a member of our Patreon family, we appreciate your support so very, very much. Um, we have a Patreon page where all, everyone who supports the podcast from $2 up to $100, um, we have different tiers available to just give you guys bonus content, bonus interviews. We record extra footage for you guys, and it's only for you, exclusively for you guys. Um, we also have tiers where, uh, I think $10 tier, you get uh, free PDFs uh, of some of our books, uh, $25, we have uh, Zoom calls and weekly video posts, things like that. All the way up to $100. Um, check it out. And again, for everyone who does support us on Patreon, thank you. Thank you so much. It means the world to us that you love us so much you can't get enough and you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. And that right there, that's awesome. Thank you. And oh, dear listener, if you love us as you say you do, 
please rate us five stars on iTunes or Balaam's ass will come to eat <laughs> your talking snake. Oh my God. What the? F- <laughs> I've never five heard stars. that. Well, you better do five stars because that sounds terrifying. Eve would be very proud right now, Derek. Very proud. For the win. 